So, people aren't metaphors. <laughs> That's a controversial take in literary circles, I know. But it's something I believe wholeheartedly. <laughs> if you give a character a name, life, on a page, or baked in clay, or on a screen, or in my ears, you have made that being people. You have asked me to suspend my disbelief, to engage the gears of imagination, and pretend that the person you have created is a living, breathing person. Now, as I said in the last episode, if you're writing anything other than romance, you might not necessarily need me to care about that person. But you do need me to feel like they exist in space and time. You need me to use my dumb animal brain as I go along with you through the narrative, connecting with the characters as human beings, even if they are not, say, humans. So it really rubs me the wrong way when authors and scholars dismiss entire characters wholesale based entirely on the idea that they are metaphors. One of the few books that I truly, deeply abhor, which I shall not name here, goes to great lengths to make its sole female character a metaphor. She is stalked, abused, and eventually dies, all because of the male lead's obsession with what she represents. That's bad. <laughs> Worse? The author leans heavily into the idea that, well, she probably deserved it, since she represented something inherently bad, and really you, the reader, should feel bad for judging the male lead. His dreams have been killed like her dead-ass body, don't you know? hate that shit. Hate it. I'm not disputing the use of metaphor, nor the interpretation of symbolism in text. What I take umbrage with is the complete disregard for the humanity of a character in favor of metaphor, and usually, the lead character's personal story. If we're talking symbolism and meaning here, then I really don't like the implication of that. I once read a passage in a book on writing craft that really stuck with me. I wish I could remember where exactly it came from, but I'm pretty sure I read the book, or post, or sticky note, or something, way back in 2008. So that information is lost, shall we say. In any case, the quote went something like this. A good writer understands all their characters. A great writer cares about all their characters, even the bad ones. When you reduce a character down to nothing but metaphor, but at the same time demand a reader meet them as people, you're hollowing out both your intention and the reader's experience of the story. You simply cannot have both. This is why I get so defensive about Enkidu. I think that in a scholarly effort to analyze the progress of humanity and civilization, the interpretation of his character has vastly overshadowed the man himself. Here's how I know that. 
When I first heard about his role in the Epic of Gilgamesh, it was a footnote in a lecture about the movement of nomadic hunter-gatherer bands to permanent settlements. Enkidu the Wild Man represented what humanity had begun to leave behind. Movement, wilderness, a more innocent and primitive lifestyle. Heavy quotes there. And his taming represents the difficult transition of humanity. Of course, there are other interpretations. Some people think his character is all about the loss of innocence. Enkidu is Adam. Shamat, the erotic priestess, is Eve, and so on. <laughs> There's actually a literal evil snake at the end, but that has nothing to do with anything, really. It's just happenstance. If you squint, you can probably turn his entire identity into any number of questionable things. Does he represent the repression of sexuality? Is he the id or the ego? Is the entire story just a coma dream? I'm not saying that his character doesn't represent something important, or noteworthy, or even as far-reaching as man's quite sudden abandonment of a comfortable nomadic lifestyle enjoyed for thousands and thousands of years. He can represent something. We all can. But he's also a man. He is as vividly and gorgeously rendered as Gilgamesh himself. He is not a side character, nor a hollowed out shell meant to simply convey symbolism. He's got personality, hopes, dreams, love. Enkidu is a gentle soul caught up in a story with an unhappy ending. He is more than just a footnote. He matters. Hi, and welcome to the Kingdom of Thirst podcast. My name is Abigail Kelly, and this is the third installment in our Epic of Gilgamesh special. So far, we've discussed why the story matters in its wider cultural context, as well as who Gilgamesh the man might have been. This week, we're going to spend some time with his better half, Enkidu. So, you all know about Gilgamesh at this point. The man, I mean, not the story. We haven't gotten there yet. You know that Gilgamesh was a 17-foot-tall menace who loved to bone down and party so hard that his people had to ask their wishy-washy gods to intercede on their behalf. You know that he was gorgeous beyond all comprehension. He was radiant and strong and huge and perfect, according to the narrator, anyway. As you might recall from last week, the gods actually listen to their people for once. They heed the cries of the people from Uruk and say to themselves, Ah, Dag, you're right. He's really making a mess down there, isn't he? How are we going to deal with that? So in Lil, king of the gods, looks around and goes, Oh, shit. He's pretty big, isn't it? You really mucked this up. Let me, uh, I don't, I mean, let me, all right, all right, okay, okay. Let me go see if we can figure out a way to, like, not deal with him ourselves. Yeah? 
So he goes to the goddess Aruru, who crafted mankind and perfect Gilgamesh with her own hands, and he says, Ayo, what if you, like, made a better boy to handle that one? Could you, like, could, could you do that? Is that? Could you do that? And Aruru says, Eh, sure thing, boss. Uh, give me some of that sloppy, sloppy clay, huh? I'm paraphrasing here. Because you can't beat perfection, Aruru makes Gilgamesh 2.0. Same size, 17 feet tall, 6 feet wide from nipple to nipple. And just as radiant and beautiful and perfect. The only difference is, instead of plopping him, say, in the arms of the goddess Nitsun, she simply chucks him down the mountain like a Nerf ball. That boy whistles, baby! That is... Well, you know, until he lands in the middle of nowhere. I presume he's fine, but we may never know. Now, it's not entirely clear if he was formed as a baby and aged very fast, if he aged at a regular pace and the gods just shrugged and let Gilgamesh's people suffer for the duration it took for him to, you know, age up, or if he plopped down in the wild a 17-foot-tall baby man. Personally. I prefer the baby man version, because then it becomes an extremely fun example of a classic romance trope. Born sexy yesterday! What's born sexy yesterday, you ask? Well, it's exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) It's an extremely common trope in sci-fi, and to a lesser degree, paranormal romance. Basically, a perfect being is created, or summoned, who is both super hot and totally ignorant of the world around them. They're innocent, precious little creatures in raging bods who have to be gently guided and thoroughly railed by their counterpart. Think Lilu and whatever Bruce Willis's character's name was in The Fifth Element. You know, multipass and all that. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, frankly, um, but we're not going to do that today. <laughs> We've got our hands full with Enki 2. I spent a good 80% of last week's episode really just bashing Gilgamesh the man. He's huge and terrible and as dumb as a post. He gets better, sure, but not without soul-crushing pain and a literal world-spanning journey that ends in abysmal failure. He blows, remember? Enkidu is supposed to be made of the exact same stuff as our boy Gil cut from the same cloth, molded from the same clay, literally. And yet he is the polar opposite of him in every way. Our sweet boy Enki is, to put it simply, a people pleaser. Perhaps this is related to the fact that he was crafted for a very specific purpose. My interpretation has always been that it's simply because he's lonely. See, Enkidu wasn't raised in a palace. He didn't even have a mother, let alone a village to raise him. Aruru didn't give him a little smooch before she sent him on his merry way, nor check up on him after she chucked him down the mountain. He was simply left by himself in the wild. I don't care if he was a baby baby or a man baby, that's fucked up. While Gilgamesh strolled through the streets of Uruk, not even stopping when people bent to kiss his feet. Enkidu languished in the wild. 
He found companionship with the animals that dwelled there and did his best to fit in. The poem goes to great lengths to say how he ran just as fast as they did, how they viewed him as one of their own, and how he only used his human cleverness to thwart and dismantle animal traps for them. He seems perfectly happy like this, of course. It's not like he knows any better. The poem itself doesn't explicitly say that he lived a happier life in the wild, but there is a certain wistfulness to the descriptions of his time there. If we're going to put on our stuffy metaphor sweaters, you could say that the original storytellers might have been putting their own longing for a lost way of life in that part of Enkidu's story. If the characters we know were real people, there's nothing to say that their legacies weren't gilded onto pre-existing narratives. So the foundation of the Epic of Gilgamesh could be much older than we can ever know. The voices of nomads could be speaking to us through Enkidu, yearning for something gone. I don't hate the metaphor here. I just don't think it's all there is to his character. There is no reason we cannot look at Enkidu as a man and as an echo of a time of massive upheaval. Certainly, there must have been tales to mark the moment when the first Mesopotamians settled into villages, and then more recounting the invasion of those strange Sumerians. While we're talking about it, I want to drill home how big of a shift this was. As far as we can tell, modern humans evolved to the brain capacity you and I boast around 300,000 years ago in Africa. Got that? 300,000 years ago. Modern people with all the same capabilities as you and me were kicking around, telling stories, getting into scraps, and falling in love. 300,000 years. We started farming 10,000 years ago. So, for 290,000 years, humans were nomads, hunter-gatherers. They lived the same way, roughly speaking, for 290,000 years until one day they simply didn't. It didn't happen all at once, certainly. No one sent a worldwide clay memo to all the folks around saying, Hey, uh, boss is shaking things up. Farming's in. Hunter-gathering is out. Best Gary from Corporate Humanity. It spread as everything does. By word of mouth. Small groups came in contact with one another, intermarried, gossiped, moved on, and spread the word. Eventually, a lot of people decided that the security of readily accessible, if very limited, food beat following migrations and seasonal foodstuffs. Not everyone would have taken well to this, though, because people have always been people. I imagine that there were probably members of bands who were horrified by something that must have felt deeply unnatural. 
Maybe they abandoned their families to keep their lifestyle. Maybe they gave up that lifestyle with great pain to be with their families instead. Or maybe those first few hundred years were worse than we typically imagine. Think of everything you know about farming. I bet you know that it's a lot of hard work. Even with our modern technology and understanding of biochemistry and botany, I bet you know that sometimes shit just doesn't work out. Crops fail. Your cows get sick. Nature does its thing. For us, that's bad. For a subsistence farmer, someone who creates everything they subsist on, rather than, say, farming with the intention of selling your taters at market, that's deadly. If you're a hunter-gatherer who has just settled down in a village and a couple years down the line you get a stroke of bad luck or an experiment fails, you don't just go hungry. You and everyone you know dies. And this isn't just because of hunger, either. You know what domesticating animals brought? Disease. You know what living in close quarters with your loved ones brought? More disease. You know how disease doesn't spread? By groups of about 30 people living in open spaces with good ventilation, a varied diet, no domesticated animals, and only occasional contact with small, similarly isolated groups of people. See what I'm getting at here? So those people who didn't love the transition from nomadic lifestyle to live in that urban vibe, they weren't necessarily wrong. I can see why they would tell stories of a wild man who lived in perfect sync with nature, a man who was happy and ignorant and free. That being said, Enkidu still isn't just a metaphor. <laughs> if he was, his entire story would be about that. It's not. The Epic of Gilgamesh is not a clash of wildness versus civilization. It is not even a drawn-out cage match between Gilgamesh and Enkidu. The first quarter of the epic sets up those stakes only to immediately do away with them as soon as the two men slap eyes on each other. This is real edgy literary shit over here, folks. Sure, they get a good, sexy tussle in there, where there's no blood drawn and no hard feelings. If anything, by the time Gil has Anki in an erotic headlock, they're ready to pledge their lives for one another. That stuffy metaphor sweater goes up in flames. I hope you weren't still wearing it. Okay, okay, okay. So we've established that Enkidu isn't just a metaphor, where he came from, and what his purpose in the story is supposed to be. But who is Enkidu the man? I mentioned his core of loneliness earlier, as well as his inherent need to please. These traits go hand in hand, and they form the foundation of his entire personality. Enkidu hungers for companionship, even when he does not know other people exist. When he does discover other people, he jumps at every opportunity to please them, to fit in with them, as best he can. A great example of his desperation to please is, in fact, that very first meeting. 
So, Enkidu has been running wild for a while now. He is one with the animals. He lopes with gazelles, hunts with lions, and vibes with all the rest. They look at him as one of their own because he is entirely unsullied by contact with humanity. One day, a trapper boy discovers that his animal traps have been dismantled. He's annoyed because, hey, that means he doesn't get dinner while he's out tending his father's flock or whatever. It's downright rude. So the trapper boy goes looking for the culprit, perhaps a very smart monkey or some such, and instead discovers a truly terrifying sight. A 17-foot, 6-foot wide, from nipple to nipple wild man running naked and free with the wild animals, drinking from streams, getting a tan, and generally being feral. So the boy runs back to his dad and says, Hey, listen, Pop. I just saw some really unhinged shit, and I don't know what to do with it. This man had a beard all the way to his feet, and he was six feet wide from nipple to nipple, and it was just really whack, dude. I don't know. And his father says, Oh, work? Well, uh, I mean, you should probably go to Gilgamesh. He probably knows what to do. Don't let him wrestle you, though. He'll crush you like a baby bird in his beautiful, beautiful fist. And so the boy goes to Uruk and tells Gilgamesh about what he saw. The spare details here make it sound like this sort of thing happens all the time, which is kind of hilarious to imagine. Did Gil just, like, sit around, waiting for dirty little trapper boys to come around and tell him wild stories? Or, <laughs> or did some of his guards take a look at his face and go, Oh, you, you look like you've seen some fucked up shit, kid. Want to talk to our very large king about it? Anyway, he tells Gil the story, and Gil's like, Hmm, sounds like that man needs a good dicking down. From Stephen Mitchell's Gilgamesh. Go to the temple of Ishtar. Ask them there for a woman named Shamat, one of the priestesses who give their bodies to any man in honor of the goddess. Take her into the wilderness, and when the animals are drinking at the waterhole, tell her to strip off her robe and lie there, naked, ready, with her legs apart. The wild man will approach. Let her use her love arts. Nature will take its course, and then the animals who knew him in the wilderness will be bewildered and will leave him forever. The trapper boy does what he's told, though I have to wonder if he questioned Gil's plan even a little. I mean, it does seem weird, right? Firstly, Enkidu wasn't hurting anybody. He was just chilling with the animals. Why not drive him off? Better yet, knowing Gil's usual tactics, why not just hunt him down and kill him? It seems like a strangely elaborate plan with no real reward, but hey, maybe there's more going on. Hint. There absolutely is more going on. You know, soulmate shit. Whether or not he thinks it's a good idea, the trapper boy goes to the temple of Ishtar, finds Shamat, the erotic priestess, and they travel back to the wilderness to seek out Enkidu together. Okay. Okay. I want to pause here and say that I am absolutely fucking fascinated by Shamat. She is the most mysterious character in the entire story, and just below Gil and Enki in importance. The plot hinges on her involvement, and her character gives us a tantalizing glimpse into a culture we struggle to understand today. 
See, in many translations, Shamat is simply referred to as a prostitute. This is a woeful oversimplification of her role and carries many connotations for us that the term would not have been associated with 6,000 years ago. This is one of those times when the imperfect art of translation really colors how we view the text. Please remember, my funky little friends, that when you read the Epic of Gilgamesh today, you are reading a modern person's interpretation of it. Unless, of course, you can read Sumerian and Akkadian, in which case hit me the fuck up, please. It is not only a modern person's interpretation of the dead language, though, but also usually a straight white man's interpretation of it. Okay, so let's go back to when the epic was first translated, shall we? It's like 1800s England or whatever. A straight white man who works for a British museum is bent over a cracked clay tablet, painstakingly translating cuneiform one character at a time. He comes across Shamat and sees that Gilgamesh orders her to have sex with Enkidu, as she does many times for many other men as part of her duties as a priestess of Ishtar. The man, coming from the world he was born into in the perspective of his own experiences, would assign that woman the title prostitute and all of the baggage and scorn that it comes with today. But here's the deal about the past, folks. Never assume that something you think you understand now applies exactly the same way to people who lived 6,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 200 years ago, even 50 years ago. Like I said in the first episode, Mesopotamia is a world away from a world. Their culture almost certainly saw many things differently than we do. Religion, civic duty, nature, sexuality. We'll talk about this a lot more in the final episode. But for now, I want you to take Shamat's title as temple prostitute with the tiniest grain of salt. That is a modern translation of an ancient practice, and you should banish any hang-ups or negative associations you might have with the term before we move forward. And while you're at it, maybe think about those negative connotations around sex work in general a little harder too, folks. Okay? Fuck off with all of that shit. All right. Shama was a priestess. She also had sex with people as her job. These two things are not mutually exclusive, nor do they lessen the impact or seriousness of one another. They coexist happily. Because to the Mesopotamians, there was no separation between the earthiness of sexuality and worship. You get the feeling that she viewed this mission as exactly that. Her duty as both a servant of her goddess and also as a loyal subject of King Gilgamesh. There's so much dignity to her. She is calm and control and kind, personally. I would kill to read a story about just Shama. What kind of woman was she? What were her duties? How did she end up at the Temple of Ishtar? What were the other disciples like? Did they have healthcare? This tiny little slice of life comes from her description of Uruk, meant to entice Enkidu into seeing the city for himself. Every day is a festival in Uruk with the people singing and dancing in the streets. 
musicians playing their lyres and their drums, the lovely priestesses standing before the temple of Ishtar, chatting and laughing, flushed with sexual joy and ready to serve men's pleasure in honor of the goddess, so that even old men are aroused from their beds. Oh my god, I want to know everything about her life, y'all. But we don't get everything. Like I said in the last episode, poetry is sparse. We get just enough information to know that Shamat went willingly to seduce a terrifying wild man, and that she and the trapper boy traveled together, and that when she saw Enkidu, she did as she was told. This is um, <laughs> helped enormously by the fact that Shamat is uh, immediately attracted to him and actually wants to have sex with him, by the way. It's great. Shamat laid down in the grass, spread her legs, and said, All right, big boy, let's get you civilized between these thighs. Enkidu is like wicked on board with this. Though she's presumably the first human being he's ever seen, he is absolutely down with getting his sexy on in the dirt with this woman who is almost certainly way out of his league. Which, honestly, I get it. The wildest part of this is the fact that they do it for like seven straight days. Yeah. Seven days. She stripped off her robe and lay there naked with her legs apart, touching herself. Enkidu saw her and warily approached. He sniffed the air. He gazed at her body. He drew close. Shamat touched him on the thigh, touched his penis, and put him inside of her. She used her love arts. She took his breath with her kisses, held nothing back, and showed him what a woman is. For seven days, he stayed erect and made love with her until he had had enough. Finally, after they are both probably dying of dehydration and starvation, sticky from head to toe and chafed like a canned ham, Enkidu gets up and says, <clears throat> Well, that was nice. Uh, I'm going to go back to my friends now. Later. I should say, he tries to do this. Unfortunately for our lad Enki, now that he has sullied himself with dicking, he is no longer one of the animals. When he runs with the gazelles, they flee. When he tries to hunt with the lions, they turn on him. When he seeks out the low creatures, they cower. Heartbroken by this rejection, he finds Shamat once more. Turns out, she never left. Instead, she waited for him, patient and dignified, to return. It is here that Shamat assumes more than just the role of a seductress. She becomes a nurturer, a guide. And listen, I don't necessarily enjoy the sexual partner to mother figure pipeline, but alas, that's what we're given, so... Yeah. Shamat takes Enkidu back to the trapper's village, where the real civilizing begins. 
He gets a bath. Dear Christ, yes, she did sleep with this man for seven straight days when he hadn't even ever bathed. A haircut and a hot meal. He's taught what bread and beer are and how to use utensils and approximately a thousand other things that you and I take for granted. Immediately, Enkidu's people-pleasing nature comes into play. He's desperate for Shaman's approval and sets out to do everything she asks. Most importantly, this includes seeking out Gilgamesh, who she warns is both the greatest man and the worst man alive. The most poignant part of this journey with Shamat is when they come across a man on his way to a wedding. Enkidu and Shamat ask the jovial man where he's going, and he explains that he's on his way to Uruk to witness the ceremony. Enkidu probably had, well, doesn't really have any idea what this means. Um, and in the explanation, it comes out that the bride will be deflowered not by her new husband, but by Gilgamesh himself. Interestingly, the man doesn't seem all that troubled by this, and frankly, neither does Shama. But Enkidu is outraged, disproportionately so. Almost like he's searching for some way to prove himself, to show Shamat that he's worthy, he immediately demands to go to the wedding so that he can challenge this great and terrible Gilgamesh. When he hears how wonderful, how awe-inspiring the king is, he is both horrified and filled with a yearning he doesn't understand. Deep in his heart, he felt something stir, a longing he had never known before, and the longing for a true friend. Enkidu said, I will go, Shamat. Take me with you to the Great Walled Uruk, to the Temple of Ishtar, to the Palace of Gilgamesh, the mighty king. I will challenge him. I will shout in his face, I am the mightiest. I am the man who can make the world tremble. I am supreme. It's about finding his place as much as it is about fate pulling him toward his soulmate. It's about making sure that he's one of this new pack he's found himself. If he can challenge a man who is doing wrong, Perhaps he can impress people, please them, even when those same people warn against him doing so. He is just as hard-headed and dumb as Gilgamesh. Remember, these two are literally made from the same stuff. Once they have an idea, there is absolutely no tearing them away from it. Enkidu stubbornly assigns himself a mission to please his new companions. And so, for better or worse, the epic of Gilgamesh really begins. Thank you for listening to the third episode in our Gilgamesh miniseries. You can find all the resources I've used for research listed in the show notes. If you'd like to check out more of my work, you can also find the links to my books in the notes. My newest book, Empire, 
featuring a vampire assassin, a cutie pie witch, and a bunch of made-up holiday nonsense, releases January 10th. It's up for pre-order now. Check it out if that's your thing. Next week is the finale of the miniseries, where we'll finally talk about what happens in the epic of Gilgamesh, and why it's truly a love story for the ages. See you then. Kingdom of Thirst is a member of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find all of our episodes and tons of new podcasts to listen to at frolic.media slash podcasts.